Blog Talk Radio. This is Randy Goldberg welcoming you to Science Light Show, and we have a special show. This evening, we're going to be listening to a very rare archived talk lecture given in the United States by um, visiting Jungian analyst, expert in Jungian psychology, Catherine Aspers. She's absolutely brilliant, and you're going to love this talk. Um, The material in this talk is amazing. She um, is someone who uh, has written many books, including um, a book, uh, unfortunately, it's out of print. Uh, it's called The Abandoned Child Within, Losing and Regaining Self-Worth. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, I just checked that book. is like, uh, you can find copies, used copies for $200. It's out of print on Amazon. Um, so, she is someone, Catherine Asper is one of the great thinkers and, uh, in Jungian psychology, and her material is, is very rare and difficult to come by, and um, I haven't been able to find any of her talks on the internet or anything, so I really am honored to share this one. I want you to check out her books and um, um, there are links below uh, uh, about different things that she's written and um, so enjoy. I apologize. Uh, This is coming off of an audio cassette and the quality, uh, particularly it starts out a little wonky but it gets better over time and um, so uh, enjoy this gem from the archive. This is a live lecture that you did. The introduction. A lot of other classes. And she also brings this beautiful combination of heart and mind. And a whole friend of mine who came all the way from Austria this last week, Sophie Davis, a happy actress, and called me just this morning to say, There are beautiful feet. Enjoy the feet. Thank you. 
feel in a way centered. I am alone, but yet I am not alone and don't feel alone. I feel contained, relaxed. The fact that I have time is important. I have no appointment for a few hours. Whenever I'm sitting at my desk, thinking and writing, or just doing nothing, I experience being at home. I experience uh, sharing and caring. I'm in a dialogue. But I can hear you in a way asking, how can she feel in a dialogue there's nobody around? Well, the feeling of being contained and alive expresses itself in a dialectic manner. I'm in a receptive mood. Then, if I'm lucky, I have an idea. I take the idea up and I start dialoguing inside myself with its content. In other words, the ideas and I accompany each other for a little while and keep a dialogue going. What comes out of this dialogue is what I write down. One could say that there is a dialogue between the unconscious from which the idea has arisen and myself who takes up the idea. Or if you want, the idea and I share and care for each other. I experienced one of the greatest feelings of containment during the time when I'm in a contemplative mood, spending pleasant hours in creative activity. Of course, there are other such moments. For example, when I'm together with a beloved person, walking outdoors, close to nature, or just strolling through a foreign city. In all these situations, whether I'm alone or with people, I carry out a dialogue. That is, when I really feel contained. Taken in this sense, home is ultimately an inner home, an inner self-experience. I am within myself and stay with myself, even when I'm in a dialogue with the outer world. Home then does not depend on my being in my home, country, or meeting known people. It is a being with oneself, a space in a place where I can feel alive. Being at home does mean being rooted in oneself, experiencing the connection between the ego and the self. It brings a certain kind of silent happiness and joy, flexibility and I would say security and hope. That sounds very ideal, what I just said. Mm. However, like everybody else, I'm not always in touch with myself. I'm not always in this inner space. And quite often, like everybody else, I feel beside myself. My personality is not such that I'm always able to be in touch with myself. The world is not such that I or we can continuously have this 
kind of feeling. We are often under stress. We have to rush from appointment to appointment. We feel anxious, insecure, and torn. We have to face destructive situations that upset us, trap us, or restrict us. Then we have the feeling of not being really ourselves. And in order to survive, we have to develop, develop certain strategies. We have to protect ourselves, we have to be diplomatic, or we have to just hide behind a mask or a persona. We may, for instance, insist on remaining objective while inwardly experiencing only rage. Or to put it prosaically, I would say, at this type of situation and affective state are, in a way, part of the normal course of life. And I would say we are more or less okay if we can put up belong to living. Furthermore, we are okay because amongst all the ups and downs of everyday life, we succeed time and again in discovering a little piece of home in the sense defined above. We are okay because we manage to mark off these homes in time and space and to use them to recover energy. In this sense, home is something that we can find within ourselves, a safe and positive inner place that we need in order to put up with life in all its difficult aspects. But home is also something that is very subjective and cannot be exchanged arbitrarily. Home is always private. It is, in quotes, my home. In other words, the feeling of home that I experience while sitting at my desk may not mean anything to someone else, and I cannot sell that as a recipe to other people. One can find a home in any situation, that allows one to be with oneself. Those who manage time and again to find a home, it is to say to initiate a dialogue in which they share and care, but to also manage to live temporarily every reason to be grateful, to feel gratitude. And the German poetess, Marie-Louise Kaschnitz, expressed this very well when she said, a house in which to live, a light in the darkness. I would like to discuss now the various types of disturbances that may lead to the feeling of being homeless and to a pathological kind of alienation, or if you want, to a lack of rootedness. I will talk only of cases in which this problem has been caused by war, exile, the early death of one or both parents, or shortly and briefly I will touch the subject of early wounding. I will also be interested in cases where the individual has lost or never had a positive image of God 
And if we look at this lack of rootedness as the consequence of a break in a person's lifeline provoked by inner and outer events. Let me first talk about war survival. There we'll find the loss of inner and outer home as the consequence of a break in the lifeline. Uh, just after the Second World War, some researchers studied the phenomenon that they called deprivation. And the research in deprivation is closely connected with the well-known author, John Bowlby. By that, they meant at first the psychic disturbance suffered by children who had survived war or a separation. Think of Anna Freud and Dorothy Birmingham, for instance. But in the past maybe 10, 15 years, one has started to study the fate of adult survivors and of their children, be they aggressors or victims. I remember in English the work of Epstein, Children of the Holocaust, or the book by Bach on the legacy of silence, who studies the biography of children of Nazi people. These works show clearly that severe trauma caused by a loss by persecution or by cruel war practices may be considered responsible for severe damage to the personality. This may even be suffered by people whose childhood had been sufficiently happy for them to develop a positive identity feeling. William Niederland, a psychiatry consultant for the German Consulate General in New York, has done many, many hundred expertises concerning the consequences of Nazi terror for survivors. He introduced the term survival syndrome into medical terminology. And it's not many years ago that the DSM-3 has incorporated a new diagnosis, the um, in English, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And all over the world, especially also in the United States and Washington, as a consequence maybe of the war in Vietnam, one has inaugurated trauma centers. The results of his studies make it very clear that this syndrome is not the result of a pathology that existed before the trauma, and that the different symptoms can be said to have been provoked by a true psychic murder. Now, it is, in a way, in the tradition of that psychology, there is a tendency when to say when people have suffered trauma, maybe, maybe war, persecution, or rape, or an accident. Well, they already had, prior to a trauma, they had a pathological uh, structure. And this is very obnoxious and dangerous to 
thing. When one reads his expertise, one realizes that the people suffering from a survival syndrome perfectly healthy before the trauma. There were people who successfully, who did not suffer from any handicap and who quite often had managed their lives rather well. The description given by Niederland of what these people experienced after the persecution and the concentration camps is all the more frightening. Most of them have aged prematurely. They are withdrawn, depressed, and cannot enjoy life. They suffer from panic attacks. They live in a chronic state of fear and pregnant with imaginary catastrophes. Trouble in sleeping, frequent nightmares, and often they suffer from nausea and vomiting. They have a deep-rooted feeling of guilt. They also feel rootless, without a home country, and socially isolated. They can suddenly break out in a sweat, flush deeply, shake, and cannot talk. More than 20 or more years after the traumatic event, many victims start crying violently as soon as someone mentions this thing. They have practically no relationship to the children whom they are found again after the war. It is very difficult for them to keep a job and the quality of their life is by far not as good as before the war. In other words, they not only have lost their home country, in a way they have lost the sense of inner home. Just give you an example could also happen today. Mrs. T was born in a well-to-do educated Jewish-Polish family. They owned a business and their life was harmonious. She was never sick except of normal childhood diseases. She did her A-level and when she was 22, she got married to her present husband. They owned an import-export company and business was going well. Two children were born and Mrs. T deemed to trust life. After 1940, the family was forced to live in a ghetto. They ran away because they were afraid of becoming victims to the selection. But they were very, but they were caught and brought back to the ghetto. The whole family there suffered from typhus and malnutrition. And Mrs. T and her husband had to do forced labor outside the ghetto. She was terrified that the children wouldn't be there anymore when she came home back in the evening. The pressure of the persecution was unbearable and the full family had to hide for months in a forest. Their hiding place was a pit and they vegetated in this humid and muddy environment. Her whole life was in those years filled with hunger, thirst, the danger of being killed, and constant chronic anxiety. After the war, the family managed to escape from Europe and they came to the United States. But just 
before the end of the war, the Mrs. K and her husband were fleeing, and she was holding her elder child by the hand and carrying the younger in one of her arms. The young child was hit by a bullet and died. And this was in winter of 1945. The ground was frozen and was hard as stone, and the parents had to leave their child without burying him. These few remarks on the possible consequences of traumatic events and persecution in times of war show clearly how deeply the feeling of being at home in oneself and in the world may be disturbed at any time of our life, if not forever destroyed. One should also consider the fact that suffering of war survivors is not an individual fate, but the result of a collective fate of collective persecution. <clears throat> Mankind has always tried to understand what happened within a more transcendent context. Early on, one thought of the goddesses of fate who turned the spindle, and if the collective fate is negative, the goddesses of fate turned the spindle in the wrong direction. That's one image. Or the goddesses of fate in German mythology, the Norns, they weave in war um, perspectives thrown to the tapestry of life, of the life of a collective. These are archetypal ideas born out of the human need to explain collective destiny and individual destiny. After the Second World War, after Auschwitz, a few Christians also formulated a theology after Auschwitz that includes a reflection on the absence of God on the Deus Abconditus. I'm referring here to the work of the theologian Dorothy Seller, who is a professor for theology in Hamburg and in the United States, who says that God is no longer here. She sees our time as the culmination of a movement that started about 200 years ago. Its adherents talk of God's death of the endless pain written about by Hegel. It is to say of the feeling on which contemporary religion is based and, as she said, God himself is death. In other words, a collective traumatic destiny is here perceived as being caused by external and, in our understanding, deeply internal negative factors. One of the goddesses of space severs the thread of life or turns a spindle in the wrong direction, or that from a modern Christian viewpoint, God is said to be absent. Let me talk now about some aspects 
of exile. As a therapist, I have had quite a few occasions to work with people who had come to Switzerland from Eastern country, block, Eastern Bloc countries, or whose parents came from these countries. I have often been struck by the fact that these parents invested much energy into rebuilding a social network, into acquiring a social status and connection. Much of their time is spent trying to reach this goal, and they understandably consider it very important to get to know people who have a certain social prestige. In other words, they want to become somebody who is respected, who has a position in society, and who owns material goods. Some of them succeed, while others never quite get there or fail outright. In any case, their children often have to carry unconsciously what their parents have delegated to them. The children get the message, the unconscious message, that they must be successful and that they must continue the severed thread of life into the next generation, into the new country. Their parents want them to have a better life and to carry on their own adaptation to the new country. Viewed from a Jungian perspective, these children quite often secretly carry the projection of the archetype of the divine child. The divine child, as we all know, appears in mythology and religion when the need for a new and better time arises. It is characteristic of these better times that they are expected to bring salvation and paradise. At the human collective level, this may be expressed, for instance, in the huge hope that accompanied early emigrants and settlers to America. The motto engraved on the base of the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor is a witness to the fact that the United States, as God's own country, in a way received and also maybe promised a paradise to the poor, the needy, and the refugees. It says in this motto, give me your tired, your poor, your hungry, yearning to be free. At an individual level, the archetypes of paradise and of the divine child are still expressed in the fantasies that migrants from, for instance, eastern countries project to Switzerland. What is more, they project the divine child unto their children and in a way put them unconsciously under pressure to become a living proof that this paradise, per hoped for paradise, can be reached. In reality, the parents have seldom found more than fragments of this dream. One of my analysts, a woman aged 24, had come to Switzerland with her parents when she was four years old. She consulted me because she was suffering from depression. 
she was the only child and her parents had left everything behind and came to Switzerland at the father's insistence. The mother had emigrated, emigrated against her own will and never could find a feel of home in her new surroundings. The father found a sense of home in the professional realm, but not relatedness in his context. The family, as it is often seen, led a very strong life without contact or much contact to the outer world. Mary Anglisan's parents treated her in a very inconsistent manner. They wanted her to succeed and had great expectations towards her, but simultaneously they spoiled her, and here one can see the projection also of the divine child. And she was a beautiful young woman, I mean, really, who carried a lot of this hope. The pressure that was put on her unconsciously was connected to her parents' hope that one day she would achieve social prestige. When they spoiled her, they saw her in the light of the divine child. The child, my unresigned, was the little treasure who was allowed everything. For instance, and this is quite bizarre, it was her who chose at the age of five, six, which television program to watch or where to go on holiday. Very strange. The mother never found happiness in her new country, and she sometimes suffered from depression. She invested a lot of her energy into my analysand, who said that she was trying to live through her. When she was a child, patient, hurt, and this is very, this is quite often described, had a whole series of nightmares in which she was being persecuted. As she herself was never directly threatened by persecution, we may understand these dreams as coming from her parents' unconscious in which she participated. Both the parents and the grandparents had been persecuted. An uncle had been shot dead under the eyes of his family because he had refused to sign the Communist Manifest. In the analysis, the main point was to work on the analysis emotional and complete biography and to understand it in relation to her parents and their life as migrants. When I make the distinction between emotional and complete biography, I mean following. You all have a factual biography, no more or less the facts of our life. And we know what other people, for instance, our parents, said about us. You were always a difficult child, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have been a very good child. Always, you know, um, nice. This we believe long, long time into adulthood. But this is what I call the first biography, or the contextual biography. And I think we also have an emotional biography. 
part of it may be connected to our ego and consciousness. Part of it usually are unconscious. One could also say it is a mute biography because it's not conscious. It is an emotional biography. It is encompasses all the subjectivity of the child and the later. There are times in life where we are led quite naturally to reconnect at least with parts of this emotional biography at the point when a parent dies or in midlife or later in life. But sometimes uh, we really need help to reconnect with our emotional biography. Think of incest survivors and naturally also of war survivors. The theme of home and homeland kept coming up in my analysis in various shapes. The lost homeland was in a way a lost paradise as the parents described it to her. She came to Switzerland when she was four. The lost homeland was for the parents and that is usually and also in her case never talked through with the child. The lost homeland was also the hell of persecution. The new country was seen as a paradise, but the new country was also an unfruitful soil and a difficult reality. The new country as a paradise that the child may one day win. Home as the loss of an inner home and a lack of rootedness. The mother's depression and the father's alienation. The loss of an inner home for the daughter in the sense of an alienation from herself, considering that although she had found an outer homeland, she was in a way psychically alienated from herself and from the self as a result of this strong projection she had to carry. The final phase of the analysis started with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the general opening of the East. The analysant came for her last session just before taking a trip to the hometown that she had left when she was four. While she was there, she sent me a few notes. The first time, and she allowed me to read that, found myself on the Urshibet Bridge looking towards the other side of the river. I felt myself filled with an unspeakable feeling of exaltation and pride. I was telling myself, this is your town, the work of your ancestors, of those who never experienced intimidation by the communists, and who would never have imagined that such a thing could exist. The little piece of ground is you. It lives in you, it is a part of your life, and no one in the world can rob you of that certainty, because now you know you have felt it in yourself. Every time I go to this place, these thoughts come again, and I feel down on a wooden bench, and I'm filled with peace, 
that I hadn't felt for a long time, or maybe have never felt. Evening bells are ringing in the distance. I feel good and I'm happy to have found my home again. And home here is very inner and outer. This short, concrete example shows that losing one's country in a geographical sense also involves sometimes losing one's inner home. Further, it shows that the children of migrants unconsciously carry elements that have been delegated to them by their parents. And in brackets, I have to say, and I say this, this is not a critique to the parents, that is also has to survive and need some vision. So it's just something that happens and maybe can later become conscious and it's important to become conscious. More specifically, these elements are the archetypes of the divine child and of paradise. What is more, these children are often greatly influenced by the traumatic events that their parents have confronted in the past and that motivated their exile. Their children thus unconsciously identify with their parents' aspirations. In the case of my unresigned, a certain alienation from her own nature, from herself, has resulted. Self, it is to say, her being, her feeling of identity, and her search of autonomy, was shaded or overshadowed by the archetypal message that her parents unconsciously had passed on. Then, shortly after the end of analysis, she went to Budapest, she didn't experience the city only as the rediscovered place of her birth or her family's cradle. She also had a moving experience of a harmony between inner and outer home, as the few lines quoted above show. Both homelands, the inner and the outer, were in her, but both had been buried. The outer one by political events and the inner one by the powerful elements delegated by her parents and the collective, collective context the parents were part of. This example also shows that it is not enough for someone to have an inner home in the sense of a good relationship to him and herself. The feeling of rootedness and of home also requires a geographical homeland, an outer reality that one may shape. This is an archetypal intention that inner home or home wants to be created in a house, in a home. It is true that in time of crisis, it helps if one is rooted in oneself. Yet as human beings, we have a strong need to feel rooted and to make this concrete in the outer sense. One could say that we are endowed with an instinct for rootedness or an archetypal intent and that this instinct tries always to concretize itself both physically and psychically and geographically. 
I would like to now also give you an example of really when the outer home are totally taken away, how then in certain people the notion of inner home gets very much expanded and deepened. A few days before he was executed in a concentration camp, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a very moving prayer in which he mentioned a home in God. This text is a witness to man's great capacity for survival in the worst possible condition. It also expresses the blessings granted Bonhoeffer as he managed to keep his faith in the torment of death and to find the right words to express it. He wrote, Miraculously carried by territory power, we are waiting in trust, whatever may come. God is with us every evening and every morning, and of course at the dawn of every day. These are really exceptional situations. And here we find that sometimes people are blessed enough to find or to keep a sense of inner home. Now I would like to talk about uh, the fact that children lose parents or one of the parents can be a shattering experience and can really be for a long time a lot of the strength also of inner home and can cause quite similar consequences that one finds in narcissistically disturbed individuals or personalities. Children who lose one or both of their parents feel abandoned. And what is more, they often have to leave their family surroundings and lose their home in a very concrete sense. Yet the problem is much deeper than cases the death of a father or a mother will have important consequences for the child's development and later for its adult life. And especially is this the case when children cannot make a new attachment, a new bonding, and when they are not integrated in the morning process of the surviving other parent or in the morning process of the family. These children then feel superfluous, rejected, and they feel unwanted. But this is not a question. It's just that they feel like this and cannot really take a step out of it and reflect it. That's just their feeling rejected. They lose the strong grounded grounding that may give them trust, and they need to over-adapt quite often. Quite often also, these children are very unsure of their own feelings. If they were not allowed to take part in the mourning process, which is quite often the case, they will start wondering whether something may be wrong with their own feelings because nobody witnesses them or receives these feelings. 
wrong with my feelings if I feel this inside? Yes? We are listening to a amazing rare lecture by Catherine Aspers, Jungian psychologist, expert on trauma. She is uh, talking about how trauma affects people's inner sense of home, and um, she is the author of the book The Abandoned Child Within on losing and regaining self-worth. Um, and there's links uh, on the uh, <coughs> website about this talk that you can go to and find out more information about her. Um, again, Catherine Asper um, is the name. And Is an archive lecture that she gave. Can I go on? Okay. As time passes, the child will feel less and less sure of its feelings until the point, quite often, it will almost completely give up having emotional reactions. The child then starts coping with life by using only its reason its head and the later adult will do the same. There is a good term coined by McDougall who says these people are disaffected and the whole point in therapy is then to weave the affections again together with the ego. As far as our theme is concerned, we may say that the child who lost its parents, when it was still young, does not only lose a concrete home, but this is for worse, loses contact with its inner home. It cannot feel contained and is unable to find a psychic home that may provide love and happiness. We also know by research that uh, depression occurs more often in persons who have suffered early bereavement. I would like to just uh, give you a brief example how symbolic terms this loss can be depicted. I take just the first two paragraphs of the Cinderella tale and will not continue to comment on this tale because here we see in symbolic terms what happens to a child and what it does to its inner structures, to the psychodynamics. Just relax and I read you the first two paragraphs. The wife of a rich man felt sick, and he had to say, I used the grim version and not the pumpkin version. You're beautiful. <laughs> don't know, I like this pumpkin coach. It's a lovely version, but because this is more differentiated in the beginning. Let me start again. The wife of a rich man, and as she felt that her end was drawing near, she called her only daughter to her bedside and said, Dear child, be good and pious. 
And then the good God will always protect you and I will look down on you from heaven and be near you. Thereupon she closed her eyes and departed. Every day the maiden went out to her mother's grave and wept, and she remained pious and good. And winter came, and when the snow spread a white sheet over the grave, by the time the spring sun had drawn it off again, the man had taken another wife. A child who suffers early loss develops a tendency to become pious and good in a way to over-adapt. Like Cinderella, the child adapts because death has locked it from basic safety and trust. The child is mourning, but as we see in the tale, it can only mourn adequately if someone helps. In this tale, nobody helps. As symbolized in the tale, its feelings are very quickly covered in snow and ice. In other words, the child must repress its grief and despair. It must also repress its anger. And since we know that anger is always part of a complete mourning process, in other words, what we find depicted in symbolic language is a pathological mourning process or an incomplete mourning process, too quickly covered and frozen, having expressed the anger and the frustration for having been left behind. Later, we hear in the tale, and I read the next paragraph, that Cinderella gets a step mother and two stepsisters. And we see Cinderella in this passage in the kitchen doing all the work. Please take these images as symbolic expression for our inner kitchen, for what's inside, and take each person that appears as part of one person. The stepmother in Cinderella, the stepsister in us or in Cinderella. The woman had brought with her into the house two daughters who were beautiful and fair of face, but wild and black of heart. Now began a bad time for the poor stepchild. Is the stupid goose to sit in the parlor with us, I said. He who wants to eat bread must earn it. Out with the kitchen bench. They took her pretty close away from her, put old on an old gray bedgown on her and gave her wooden shoes. Just look at the proud princess. How decked out she is, they cried, and laughed, and led her into the kitchen. There she had to do hard work from morning till night, get up before daybreak, carry water, light fires, cook and wash. Besides this, the sister did her every imaginable injury. They mocked her and emptied her peas and lentils into the ashes. So that she was forced to sit and pick them out again. In the evening, when she had worked till she was weary, she had no bed to go, but had to sleep by the hearse in the cinders. And as on that account, she always looked dusty 
and dirty, they called her Cinderella. Passage as a description of an inner situation. A child who lost a parent may develop a stepmother complex. In other words, it will not be able to love and accept himself. It, there will be a lot of hatred against one's own person. A child that feels so utterly abandoned and really having low self-esteem then needs to compensate and may show to the world a perfect outer mask which is symbolized in the fairy tale as the haughty stepsister. You know, they are masked in a way. And these parts of the child and of the later adult criticize all the time. You are nobody. You cannot do your work. You are not beautiful. You are not perfect. We can really feel that. And another survival strategy is hard working. You have to work hard in order not only to survive, but also in order to gain some love or acceptance from the people around. And the tragic thing is that the success and the joy and the pride of work and achievement cannot be felt. It's never enough. So we find quite often a tendency to go from achievement to achievement, like a little bit the workaholic, because it's not nourishing the uh, achievement and the success. As, like here, Cinderella works morning, noon, and night, but she cannot eat what she has cooked. And what's also what we see in this passage, as you have observed, Cinderella is mute. She doesn't speak. She doesn't object. That is what happens and can be translated with the term emotional biography, what I mentioned before. It doesn't speak anymore, this emotional part of our biography. And then Cinderella is has wooden shoes, she has a grey gown, is always dirty and dusty, full of cinders. If we take the cinders as symbol of guilt, you may find quite a lot of guilt feelings, deep guilt feelings, in people who have lost a parent quite early. They always feel guilty and fitting. And also, they don't care about themselves. You find, in a way, two types of Cinderella, sometimes in the same person, the meticulously masked Cinderella and with the grey inner depressive feelings. But you may find Cinderellas who don't absolutely care what they wear. I mean, they really show 
they drill down to the world and they go in really they don't mask it. Sometimes you find it was in the same person. And what we also find the sisters throw lentils into the ashes and peace and she has to pick them out. This sabotaging attitude towards one's own personality and building up mountains of problems and you will never be able to solve them. That's how I see this peace and lentil in the ashes. And in the evening, Cinderella cannot sleep in a bed. In a way, that's an image for the loss of inner home. It's often the case that the person then feels not only not well embedded in life, but not well embedded in herself or himself. There is no basic trust or no inner, the sense of inner home. That is, in short, the description of, in symbolic terms, of an inner situation, an inner a picture of the psychodynamics in a person having suffered early death of a parent when it was not possible, or in cases where it was not possible to make a new bonding to person and where it was not possible to have a complete mourning process. Yes? I... Just have two lines, and then I make a break. Is that fine? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not enough to make the emotional biography conscious in therapy. That's one thing, to reconnect with the emotional biography, but it's so difficult to change the attitude a person that the person has to develop or help to develop a kind of being good parent attitude towards oneself to really change the stepmother and the hatred towards oneself into a more motherly, fatherly, accepting attitude. And this naturally is a point that is dealt with in therapeutic approaches. So here we make a break and then we will go to other topics after the break. Mm-hmm.
which is published by from uh, New York. <clears throat> yes, it's not the most recent, but the recent in English. Yeah, yeah. It's a book on narcissism and early abandonment and uh, the clinical aspects and therapeutic approach. Yeah. Yeah. Let me say a few words in a symbolic sense that could really give us, um, yeah, an image of what happened there in the sense of homelessness and the sense of feeling at home. Last year, I had the opportunity to go to Lithuania, and in Vilnius, I met a sculpture who has revived an old Lithuanian tradition and makes so-called house trunks. These are wooden stems on whose upper part there is a little house, sometimes with the figure of a patron saint affixed. And this little house on the stem from behind is surrounded by the cross, the Christian cross. These house crosses are placed outside, especially at the crossing of two paths or in the landscape, and they are meant as a protection against all kinds of catastrophes, and also, this is quite interesting, against where there is, are too many riches, too many fields of corn, too many apple trees, too many riches. That because that's dangerous too for us. The too good is as dangerous as Jung pointed out as the dark side. And these house trunks are part of an old heathen tradition and in pagan times they were simply made of a stem carrying the house and no the modern version combines the pagan and the Christian symbols, but the function is the same, protection. The stem or the trunk represents, in a way, the world axis connecting heaven and hell, and the little house represents a shelter where there. Uh, the the shelter is symbolized. I find the little house on this stem to be a very good image of what we need. In other words, we need an inner house or an inner structure to be protected against heaven and hell, against our two idealistic fantasies against the two good and the yearning for the two for the good and against hell. To express the same idea, uh, we can read uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's fourth Duino energy, in which it says at the end, who shows a child the way it is, who places it among the stars, and put the measure of proper distance in its hands. We need the proper distance from the 
human part draws to the archetypes, one could also say. It is precisely this distance that is meant there. Those who can find the right measure will be granted protection. In psychological terms, this means that we must keep a large enough distance both from good and from evil, from light and from darkness. People who tend to identify too strongly with these two archetypal forces see life in an all-or-nothing light. They do not know the right middle and constantly off between euphoria and deepest sadness in terms of narcissism, between grandiosity and depression, and have such a difficulty, tragic difficulty, to find and to accept the banal side of life and the middle ground and the human side of life. They tend towards the archetypal energy, or in other words, are strongly influenced by the two archetypal energies that really sometimes really tear them and create a strong tension. The little house on the stem, representing the feeling of being at home and trusting life, cannot be built or is uh, unless the early relationship between the caretaker and the child is at least somewhat good enough. During this phase, the child learns from its mother or from another significant other how to cope with its needs and its fears. If it feels well taken care of, its first experience will be surrounded by trust and safety. These two emotional dimensions will then be used, so to say, to build the house shelter that will protect the child when it starts discovering itself and the world. From the beginning of its life, it will have seen that it can trust, and this trust will serve as a counterweight to the experience of heaven and hell as the two archetypal forces that define our life. The child will thus be sheltered or protected as well as possible in the fight for survival then and later as an adult. The child who at the beginning of life has literally not had a hold to the power in heaven and hell. And what does this mean at the psychological level? To not have a hold, to be homeless, makes one feel lost at the edge of an abyss. It also makes one hate oneself and have the feeling of not being accepted by others. Finally, the feeling of being rejected by the other may lead one to imagine God as a punishing and revengeful great other. And this means living hell in this world. Yet, despite all the suffering involved, a longing for something very different, <clears throat> for paradise, is never very far away. This means that the person is eaten up by the need to find love 
safety and a home. This is why at the slightest sign that the much hoped for positive event may happen, this person will desperately believe that they have become reality and will be bitterly disappointed when they haven't concretized. The individual will also feel infuriated or terribly sad when he or she realizes that the friend, the partner, the child, the new faith, house or child has failed to fill their promise. Hell and paradise are very close to each other for people who have suffered early wounding. They are totally vulnerable emotions connected to these two extremes because no inner structure in symbolic terms, no no walls, no ground are available that may shelter them. At this level, to be homeless means to be a prisoner of the tortures of hell and the longing for paradise. What I just have said is naturally a little bit black and white and too easy. We should not uh, think uh, that only the surrounding that makes a person there is always the basic equipment, the nature, and it is the enmeshment of inner and outer plane. Uh, situation and beyond that psychology only explains half the world and the rest is after all uh, we should never forget that things are not so easy let me give you an example Mr. Sat is a man who suffers from severe borderline symptoms he really literally never had a home His father was in jail when he was born. His mother could not look after him because she suffered from heavy manic depressive disorders. So he was put very early on in a home and he, in a way, never experienced, as he said, the feeling of being held in one's mother's lap, feeling safe and loved. He probably never had the feeling of being truly accepted. In a way, the support system was practically non-existent at the chi- and the child's need to develop a close relationship must have been frustrated in a rather traumatizing manner. This overshadowed infancy was in fact only the beginning of successive experiences in which Mitchell said remained alienated, rootless, both psychically and in the outer world. He was put in one home after the other. Some places were better than others. And from time to time, he spent some time at his mother. The mother was by then divorced, and she tried a number of times to take him back. But as she was suffering from her own illness, and as our state was worsening, he could not be kept at home. This prevented her from concretizing her good intention and giving her child a home. Mr. Zed managed to finish school and did an apprenticeship as a salesman. 
He was at the end of his apprenticeship when he came to see me. And his initial dream seems to reflect his early childhood. But at a more global level, it also tells us how he sees himself and the world. Moreover, the dream seems to say at the beginning of the therapy meant hope. There are resound dreams that, and dream is as following, I'm in a hot bath. I'm crippled and the bath is surrounded by ice balls. I'm given potatoes to eat. Maybe I'll get healthy. You see, there's a lot of hope here, but also the feeling I'm an outcast, I'm crippled. He wasn't crippled, he wasn't handicapped. He was a beautiful young man. But here you see the ice walls, and one could imagine that he very early on feel the attunement to uh, attachment figures. There, in a way, the experience was the ice. And naturally, uh, I had to put in my pocket also that he will also uh, see me as an ice wall that naturally happened throughout the therapy. Let us just uh, sketch out how Mr. Seth's alienation showed itself later in her uh, life. After he left the home for apprentices, he rented a one-room apartment. He was then doing everything possible to make this apartment beautiful, comfortable, and many, many therapy hours were spent discussing this apartment by the ladies' home journal, journals for inner decoration and really put a lot of energy and libido in creating himself a proper place. I was in a way very pleased for him and thought or hoped for the first time in his life he was going to feel home. However, the pleasure and the feeling of being at home did not last. After a few weeks, he lost interest in the apartment and stopped looking after it. It, in a way, deteriorated. When he was alone there, he felt lonely, abandoned, and he would much rather stroll through the streets or join groups of young people. In other words, he was always on the move. After a few months, he moved to another flat, then moved again and again. And from then on, he changed jobs as often as he changed flats, pictures, always on the move, always hoping that something would change and always disappointed. His pathology developed into a schizoaffective disorder. He had to be in clinics several times and didn't also trust his psychiatrist, changed them over and over again. Had that happened after therapy with me, and he died then in a tragic accident at the age of 26. So what is so really striking in this example is the ice wall. In a way, the child in him, a new attachment, neither to me nor to the social workers who really did a lot for him, 
and he was really got very much help. That in a way was destroyed, one could say, or never developed, that's hard to say. And the attachment went to things, to the apartment. And as a salesman, he worked in a jewelry shop, and he also had to sell watches and kind of jewelry. And when he felt really inside homeless and exposed to ice holes in himself, he would then uh, steal jewelry in his uh, shop, but then would come to me in those days and tell me, and he could work at it and see that his sense in the home, the scanty sense, had crumbled and really fragmented. And the jewel was, in a way, a self-object concretization of something he would have needed inside and was really surrounded by fantasies. If I have this, I have a token to survive, which materialized or concretized the fantasy. Then I can at least go to Paris or travel or you know, buy something important. But usually the next day, I mean, every time the next day he would put it back. So there is, one cannot approach this moralistically because it happens on a tragic, deeper level. And as soon as one could at least in a therapy help him to regain a certain sense of being contained in himself, that was natural that he would put back the jewelry. But you see, he could attach to things, but not to human beings, because it's really a symptom of a deeper disturbance than a narcissistic disturbance. There we know that the attachment can be initiated and restored in the two transferences who describes Heinz-Hold describes so beautifully the idealizing and the mirror transference. But I don't want to go into this um, field here. Uh, This is just an example how one can see that it was not possible and anybody. And you cannot blame psychology. You cannot blame the social workers or the mother and the father. This is an aspect of how life and fate uh, are built. Let me round with a few words now about the God image and in a home. There is a saying that says, home is where we start from. Meinrad Craig had an American artist who had been a nun had thought a lot about God and the female garden. She says, our first experience of the divine mother is in our mother's lap. And that certainly is not an invention of this uh, American artist. If you read the Gnostics and go back also in literature, you find that image again and again. You find it with Theresia of Avila, who says the child, uh, the human being, is held in God's arms like a baby 
in the arms of a modern. You find this idea from <coughs> modern uh, psychological literature and even the kind of dry Winnicott expresses connection. And too, quite a number of psychologists have stressed the importance of a good enough early mother-child bond that will at least foster a positive God image and the possibility to trust. The individual depends to a large degree on this to acquire the image of a God as loving, as Jesus in the New Testament. Otherwise, God will be more revengeful and angry. One often finds it represented in Yahweh in the Old Testament. And I have observed that people who suffer from early wounding often see God, or what they call God, as an avenging, wrathful, and punishing God. A God who is experienced as praising or punishing, and not the God that is loving. And even if this is not expressed in religious terms on a more profane level, we find there an attitude towards life which can be expressed in the two words, if I do this, then. We all know that it's deeply ingrained in our Christian confessional background in in our Western culture. The if then in a way accountancy and does not need to express itself nowadays in religion's terms, but the attitude is always found and you find it naturally also in therapy. It is very subtle and not expressed in words, but we find many, many analysants who have not this inner house or have a deficient inner little house that then and sense very subtly what the analyst expects. That is very subtle and has to be checked by the analyst and has to be taken care of. Otherwise, as a therapist or an analyst, we just continue history. In other words, history repeats itself also into therapy. And it's very difficult to spot, especially because our the therapist's own narcissism is involved. Nice to have an alarm who bring in dreams and who really repeat what you say and really and it's so nice and we can be uh, tempted to fall <coughs> into that trap and should be I mean made conscious and understood empathically I and mean, they need to be mirrored for that but it needs to be conscious. 
the God image or the if-then accountancy is greatly influenced by the feeling of primary guilt that are left over, that is left over by a bad mother-child relationship. Primary guilt results from an erroneous interpretation of the frustration coming from the caretaker. Mother is leaving, oh, that's because I'm bad. That is the unconscious interpretation. That does not happen on a conscious level or on a level of the world. It happens deep down in the emotional level and only later it can be worded. But it is the primary guilt feeling that's there. This a similar element and is deeply rooted in our Christian background. The child is not the only one who feels guilty for everything. It is also very deeply ingrained in the Christian background. Uh, I became aware of this uh, in an analytic hour with an analysand. There was something happening, a misunderstanding, and I think it was some arrangement with our and it was quite obvious that it was my mistake. But the analysand, the room, every imaginable uh, argument to prove that it was her mistake. Then we talked about this, and then all of a sudden it came. She said, you know, if you would have made the mistake, then you wouldn't be entirely, wouldn't anymore be entirely good or totally good. See the need in her, of the child in her, to have or at least experience the totally good. And I think... This happens in a way on a collective level. In a certain certain quarters of Christianity, when we take all the guilt on us, then God can be the totally good. And this inspires us also with hope. Hope is then always created and hope can be guaranteed. <laughs> Hope in this way remains. The child living in a broken home situation hopes desperately. And the Amarizan uh, just talked about a child in her hoped desperately that I would be the really good enough mother. And that is actually the trap in such therapies. You get pushed into the good enough parent or to act out the archetypal parent and that would be a real betrayal of these analysants because you cannot give what life of faith has not been given to them but you can help them in at least understand in an empathic way what happens there. This is in a way also some motherly or fatherly positive energy that you give, but you cannot act it out as a therapist. 
In a way, the whole question of therapy can be expressed in a nutshell. Is it possible to maybe loosen the fixation to a negative archetype? And may it happen that the client in the depth of his psyche can connect to a positive archetypal energy to the good father, to the good mother? Because deep down we have the fixation, you can say to the negative parental archetype, you can say the fixation to hell, and the, there is the longing for paradise. Strong longing, in a way, that is also a fixation, and that leads to disappointment. But can it be, in a way, uh, restored that it can become a felt experience? And on the level of the religious, spiritual level, yeah, there could be a change towards a more Accepting God images, maybe the God of the New Testament, Jesus is uh, aiming at. This is not only a patriarchal God, it's also a God image that has accepting features. A God who goes to meet the lost son and takes him back into his house. Like a mother or father, he runs towards him puts a ring on his finger, gives him new clothes, and prepares a feast. A feast. But the God image may give us the feeling of having found an ultimate home. In many cases, but mainly in therapies with Anarizans who have suffered early wounding, the process culminates or can culminate in a newly found contact. Okay, so that's the end of, um, there's actually a second part of this lecture that um, we're going to broadcast next week. So please tune in. Um, that is a very deep and rich and complex and dense material um, feel free to call in after um, <clears throat> I think the um, this was you know basically an hour and a half and uh, I think it's just like um, 40 or 50 minutes uh, the second half but um, part so feel free to call in with questions comments discussions next week and um, just to recap some of the themes she was talking about since it is so dense and uh, apologize for the recording quality and the sound quality but that's what we got um, <clears throat> so um, she was talking about the different kinds of trauma, war trauma, immigration trauma, childhood uh, abuse and different things, and how it wounded the person's sense of self, sense of self-worth, and how 
they struggled um, to function in life and um, were often overwhelmed by different archetypal forces demonizing um, their abusers or different trauma that they faced and then desperately searching for an idealized other, um, whether it was a, a spiritual relationship, dancing with the positive side of the divine archetype or projecting that onto another. Um, she gave that example of uh, a client who did that and wanted the therapist to be perfect so that she could have somebody who was perfect in her life. And, you know, this desperate uh, search for safety when one has been traumatized. And um, again, um, you were listening to uh, Catherine Asper's the information is there. If you're listening to on a, a phone and can't see it, be sure to go to the computer and look at the um, webpage description for this show. It has links to... Um, she's written many books, and um, so there's links to her books. You can get them on Amazon. Unfortunately, they're out of print. But, uh, one of the reasons I really want to share this uh, is her material is very hard to come by. Um, but there's a um, also an article written about her there, and um, uh, it's Catherine Aspers. That's K A T H R I N A S P E R. Last name is Asper. A S P E R. And um, Jungian psychology has so much depth, so much profound deep understanding, and she also um, acknowledged how the psychological dimension is just a part of the picture and our totality in our of our being, of our soul, of our psyche, of the spiritual side and the multi-dimensional sides of who we are cannot be fully encapsulated in psychological theory, but this is just one way to get an understanding of um, ourselves and others and begin the journey of healing. So um, next Monday night uh, on Main Street Universe Science of Light show, we will have um, part two of this amazing uh, lecture talk that was given by Catherine Asbers. And uh, we'll go out with some music by Tony Child. She is an amazing artist who transforms trauma, uses her trauma to fuel her music and has powerful archetypal themes and motives, healing, cathartic um, music that she's created. So that's Tony Child, and this song is called Dreamer. And um, this is Randy Goldberg, my website. RandyGoldberg.org um, or AstroDC.com. I do astrology uh, from a Jungian perspective, uh, both Western and the Indian Vedic system. And um, yeah, here's some Tony Childs. And um, tune in next week.
Take care. Girl.